Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, one of the most influential women in world soccer, Australia's Moya Dodd, joins me to talk about FIFA reform and gender reform in soccer, including the challenge facing Iranian women who are forbidden from attending games there. I've been to Iran. I've spoken to women there who are campaigners on this issue. I've spoken to people who have been to games in disguise. You can disguise yourself as a man, but you better not get caught because it'll be very tough if you do. All that and my thoughts on the world of soccer coming up. Take one. All right, here we go with my three thoughts this week. First up, Tim Howard opened the door again last week, telling USA Today that the increase of dual nationals under Jurgen Klinsmann brought too many players who weren't committed enough to the national team. Howard clarified those comments later with ESPN FC, saying he was referring to some native-born players as well. We've been critical here before of Abby Wambach when she used the term foreign guys to describe U.S. players who are just as American as she is. These are highly charged political times, obviously, but I think it's important to make a couple points. One, Abby Wambach and Tim Howard are two of the last people who would ever be waving the flag for Donald Trump and resistance to those born outside U.S. borders. Wambach even spoke at Hillary Clinton rallies last year. Two, words matter, and Wambach and Howard should know that you need to be thoughtful choosing your words, especially on sensitive topics. Instead of focusing on dual nationals, the U.S. men's national team should be focused on team building involving every player on the team. That's what was suffering under Klinsman, and that's a big part of why Bruce Arena is in charge again. Take two. Next up, Borussia Dortmund announced on Monday that U.S. team Christian Pulisic has signed a new contract with the club through 2020. This is terrific news for Pulisic. Dortmund is the best place for him to continue his development and keep getting better, despite transfer interest from Liverpool, RB Leipzig, and other clubs. Pulisic had hesitated on extending his Dortmund deal last summer after the club signed four attacking players, and there was real concern that he wouldn't see the field much. But Pulisic has gotten plenty of playing time this season, a clear indication that coach Thomas Tuchel and the club believe in him. Pulisic almost certainly won't spend his entire career at Dortmund, which is still viewed as a selling club, but don't look for him to move anytime soon. Also, congrats to Pulisic, who's a much, much wealthier guy now. He's earned it. Take three. Finally, this week's interview with Australia's Moya Dodd, who has been the most influential woman in FIFA in recent years. In my opinion, gender reform and the growth of women's soccer globally are right at the top of FIFA's priority list in the coming years, and nobody can speak better to those topics than Dodd. We connected recently on New Year's Eve to discuss what's happening and the challenge that lies ahead. I think you'll enjoy this interview with Moya Dodd. Our guest today is one of the most influential women in world soccer. Moya Dodd is a former Australian national team player. She has served on the FIFA Executive Committee and in 2016 helped ensure FIFA's passage of a reform package, including gender reforms. She was recently named the most influential woman in Australia. Thanks for joining me, Moya. Thanks for having me, Grant. So you're coming to me from Adelaide, Australia, um, which is very cool to me. Uh, it's the first time I've interviewed somebody in Australia. I'm in New York. And we have sort of a time quirk here, Moya, in the sense that this podcast will air in 2017. But we're speaking right now. You're in 2017 in Australia, but I'm in New York where it's still 2016. So can you tell me, is 2017 better than 2016? Because I hope it is. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I'm from the future and I'm here to help you, Grant. <laughs> uh, but, well, for me, well, let me tell you, th things are real funny in, in 2017. First of all, everything's upside down. Uh, it's, it's January means it's summertime. And, you know, it's warm and breezy and uh, the waves are lapping at the shore. It couldn't be better. It couldn't be better. <laughs> that sounds fantastic, considering where I am, it's freezing right now, but uh, I will imagine that I'm in the Southern Hemisphere in warmer weather. Um, there's a lot for us to talk about here, but one reason I want to talk to you is because, to me, maybe the single biggest 
reform for FIFA to undertake in the post-set bladder world is for women's soccer reform and for women in soccer to be reformed and for uh, the influence of women in FIFA to start to resemble what we see in the rest of the world and top corporations. And we haven't seen in FIFA where for the more than a century, there were no women on the board of FIFA. And only recently have we started to see that change. I mean, just, I remember back in 2011, I would go around asking people, who is the most powerful woman at FIFA? And whenever I asked that question, even then, the most common answer would be kind of joking, Sepp Blatter's secretary. These days, that seems to finally be changing, I think. Am I right about that? Oh, well, look, I think there's no doubt there's been a lot of change in FIFA, and there are certainly a lot more women in senior positions in the organisation now than there, there, there was, you know, a, a few years ago. Um, there are uh, five women now on the FIFA Council. There'll be a sixth a- added um, when the election cycles are, are done. There are women in senior places, including the Secretary General's office uh, in, in FIFA, uh, the head of development in MAs. There's a head of women's football. And I think there is, there's been a a degree of significant cultural change whereby it's more acceptable for women to be there and, it, and it's actually unacceptable for there to be no women in organisations uh, or for women's football not to be resourced or, or represented uh, or played in, in a place. And that, that dial has moved, I think, tangibly in the time that I've seen it over the last three or four years. Uh, it's not to say there isn't a long way to go. I mean, there's a, there's a very long scale from the worst to the best to where we should be, you know, and and that's kind of a long journey. But I do think there's been a significant amount of progress in the last few years, which is very heartening. So what are the most important things that you have been working on in your mind over the last few years in FIFA to promote women's soccer and and women in soccer governance? Well, that's a hard question because, uh, you know, I I think about this every day. (laughs) And I think in in the broadest terms... The, the two most important things that we need to solve for are access to decision-making. That means governance, uh, representation in governance and in management teams. Uh, it means also the, the system becoming more transparent and accountable so that you can see where decisions are being made and by whom, how resources are getting allocated. Uh, and there's some... Uh, visibility and accountability for that because that, that's a bit of a you know it, it was a bit of a black box I think for a long time I certainly couldn't understand how decisions were made when I first got to FIFA and it took me a while to start to figure that out and and you know I think in any large organization the first thing you need to do is understand how uh, those decisions are made you've got to understand something before you can influence it or hope to change it so I think that's the first thing, it's access to decision-making. And the second thing is access to resources uh, because, you know, for so long the women's game was just kind of suffocated on the sidelines while the men's game thrived. And, you know, that's beginning to change now. I think most MAs have some level of activity in their grassroots through to national teams but you know it's still a, it's still a struggle, and it's a it's a cultural struggle in many places too, uh, as to why it's important to give girls and women opportunities to participate in sport. That's not a given. It, it's not there's no Title Nine <laughs> anywhere outside the U.S. And you know it, it's a world where there's a there's a strong degree of son preference, where parents hope for a boy even before the child is out of the womb. Boys are valued more. They're considered contributors and workers and, uh, uh, um, you know, they, they bring status, whereas girls are, uh, you know, good for domestic work. Uh, they're not often not educated um, with the same degree of preference as their brothers. You know, there's all kinds of forces at work that, that keep girls and women out of the sporting field. But I think one thing we do know is that when they do take to the field, they can be enormously successful, not only for the sport itself, but also for the benefit of society because it gives them a status that they never had before. A girl who plays sport is seen differently. The world sees her differently. And that's an enormous tool for 
social good as well as a tool for the development of the sport itself. Uh, so if I were to zoom right out and say what are the two big things, I think um, I, I would say that they are access to decision-making and uh, access to, to resourcing. And all of that, of course, is bound up in, uh, in cultural change because many of the barriers to those things are actually cultural. Now, I remember when you talk about resources, uh, and this was announced even around the 2011 or 2015 Women's World Cup, that the budget that was being required by MAs, member associations, national associations, to spend on women's soccer around the world, I think in terms of millions of dollars, was less than what FIFA spent on the Set Blatter movie. Uh, United Passions that was so horrible about the previous regime. Like, What kind of resources are we starting to see now being increased for women's soccer around the world and being required by FIFA to be increased for women's soccer around the world? Well, first of all, I, th- I think those figures are a little apocryphal because the, the women's football resourcing is made up of a number of components in FIFA. And I did, I remember seeing that observation and that measured only one component. But look, none, but I wouldn't quibble with the, the proposition that uh, not enough of world football's resources were heading to women's football. I think that's, that was, that's beyond question. Uh, and now, of, of course, there's a, a new world of regular uh, development regulations called Forward, and the development program is being reinvented uh, under, first of all, a new set of regulations and secondly, a new level of resourcing whereby each member association can uh, get up to $5 million per cycle. And mm-hmm. that's, <coughs> pardon me, that's a very significant increase on, on what the old um, financial assistance program was. That was 250000 per annum, so that was a uh, million dollars per cycle, and that's f- a five-fold increase mm-hmm. uh, in, in the new uh, world order. And women's football is a significant priority in all of that. I won't go into all the details of how it's broken down, but some of that money is accessible only if women's, football's, uh, fo- women's football programs are in place, and there will be a significant increase in inflow of resources for women's football around the world. What I um, hope is that there are plans and uh, processes around that spend to ensure that you know we get full value for the dollar. Uh, I mean that's always been one of the, the challenges in development resourcing is to ensure that that money is well spent when it lands. And uh, I think that you know that challenge still remains. Um, I mean having having a, a an action plan for, for women's football, having a plan to grow and develop it is really important because otherwise you're just kind of throwing, you know, you're putting sticky notes up on the wall and hoping they stay there. It doesn't really form into any kind of organised pattern. Um, the sequencing of the investments may not necessarily be right. So, you know, I think those plans are really important. I mean, for example, you need to ensure that you have grassroots leagues upon which more competitive leagues can be built, upon which a national team can be selected. Um, maybe initially at youth level and then at senior level. It doesn't make a lot of sense to, you know, train a whole lot of referees if there's no leagues for them to referee in. This kind of thing is important to uh, ensure that the investment is, in the end, able to deliver the value that you hope. You played a big role in the passage of the FIFA reform package in 2016. Can you fill me in on and fill our listeners in on what you think were the most important parts of that reform package, including gender reforms. Yeah, I mean, that was a that was a, a big package of reforms and it was a big shift, quite frankly. I mean, to bring in um, term limits, to bring in a separation of uh, the functions of the, the council, the old executive committee from the administration. You know, these, these are significant moves. And you know, to me, the gender reforms were also very important because one of the one of the issues with FIFA's governance was that it lacked diversity. And if you look around the world at the 211 football federations that are part of FIFA, almost every head of a football federation was male. There were two, and I think by the time the reforms were voted on, there were three, uh, one in an acting capacity, 
women who were presidents of football federations in the world. So, you know, the president is the one who um, is entitled to go up and vote or who controls the vote. And so you were then looking at a voting population that was about 1% female. It's quite an extraordinary ratio. I'm not sure that you'd find that really anywhere in modern commerce or in a modern workplace except maybe, I don't know, an oil rig on the North Sea or something where you had such a, <laughs> such a skew towards, uh, to, towards maleness. Um, and that's not to say that all the males were bad or that football is a bad game necessarily. It's just to say that it can be a much better game if it's governed by a more diverse group of people. Um, and that's been shown to be true in corporate organisations and in, in governments by an endless number of studies all over the world. And I don't need to repeat them, but they do show that diversely governed organisations make better decisions and are more profitable, uh, have a higher return on investment. You know, all kinds of dimensions are better when you have diverse decision-making. And that's not to say that gender diversity is the only issue uh, uh, in, in FIFA, but to me it was one of the most important because you had an organisation that was staunchly male and a game that was staunchly male um, for many decades, even to the point of banning women from playing in many of the big football countries of the world, like you know England and Brazil, um, banned women from playing football at different times in their history. And, and often the, and those bans were in place for decades. So you had um, a sport that had consciously and overtly excluded women uh, and then, you know, no surprise that you didn't see too many women at the governance table after finally they were allowed uh, back into the game. Um, so for me, that was one of the most important changes. Uh, and I think when you're talking about cultural change as well, which the Reform Committee did and, and which was widely acknowledged, I think if you want to change the air in the room, <laughs> if you were to put, say, 30% women in the room, that would really change the air in the room. I mean, that is the tipping point that studies show uh, is critical for gaining the benefits of that diversity. It's the point at which those women cease to become or be seen as special interest groups, uh, rep representatives, and they start to be seen as just contributors at the table. Their presence is normalised and their the benefit of their presence is able to be absorbed and, and digested by the system and, and produce uh, the best outcomes once you hit 30% or more. Um, of course, we didn't get 30% in the reforms. On the FIFA Council, there will be six, a minimum of six out of 37 uh, women at the table. That's a very big step up from where we were, that where there was one mandated position for a woman and there were two of us who were also co-opted on a year-to-year -year basis uh, sitting alongside her. But uh, to have uh, six women at the table, I think, is, is very significant. The other, some of the other reforms as part of the package which was not only who's at the table at FIFA Council, uh, but it also looked down into the organisation more broadly, um, starting with its statutory objectives. And it, they added uh, some statutory objectives for the development of women's football and the inclusion of women at all levels of football governance. Mm -hmm. There was also a statutory objective added that FIFA be using its or FIFA and its members be using their best efforts to ensure that football is resourced for all who want to play it, regardless of gender uh, or age. Um, so, you know, those things being elevated to the level of statutory objective, I think, is quite significant. Um, obviously, their implementation is important. The way that they uh, that those provisions you know, trickle down into practice is is really important, and I think that's um, a, a big issue for the for the, in, in the in the year or two to come to to ensure that they're translated tangibly into action. Uh, but um, there were other provisions where the um, confederations and members are required to ensure that their legislative bodies uh, have um, are representative, including as to gender. Uh, with regard to gender equality. So, you know, I would hope that you are going to start to see more women appearing throughout the, the pyramid of governance of football, not just at the top level where there are six mandated, but at levels at, uh, in confederations and in member federations. And I would hope too that 
um, that clubs uh, start to follow this lead. I mean, club football is immensely powerful in the uh, in, in the landscape of football, and it's also at the highest level, of course, very very male. And uh, I think there's a lot of you know there's a whole world of benefit to be to be discovered uh, there when we see the top clubs in the world uh, and the top club competitions in the world um, being reflective of the the broader community of football, including, of course, women. I think one person who stands out to me is at Chelsea, Marina Granovskaya has a tremendous amount of power there uh, at one of the top clubs in the world, obviously, but she's still sort of an outlier in many ways. I, right now, just to give my listeners an idea, how who are the couple of uh, federation presidents in the world who are women? There's one in uh, your part of the world, well, in, in the CONCACAF part of the world, shall I, shall I say, uh, and that is Sonia Bienemi in the Turks and Caicos Islands. She is the president of that uh, football association. And there is one in uh, Sierra Leone in Africa, and that is Isha Johansson, uh, and she is the president of the Sierra Leone Football uh, uh, Association, which, of course, had enormous battles against the Ebola virus, um, uh, which they seem to be through and are back, are back playing again. But those are the two women who are uh, elected as presidents of football federations. So for a second here, just let's step back. And I wanted to ask about your background. Uh, what did you do before you got into soccer governance? What kind of player were you back in the day? <laughs> oh, pretty average, actually, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, well, look, I... Um, I started playing football when I was uh, about 10. Uh, in fact, I grew up, growing up in Australia, uh, the dominant code in, in the city that I lived in was uh, Australian rules, which is a kind of crazy game. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I have. But the ball's in the air a lot. There's 18 players each side, and it's played on something the size of a cricket oval. Um, and so I, I kicked around an oval ball a lot huh. um, when I was a little kid. And then I discovered soccer by watching it on television. In fact, we got a television. That's how I discovered <laughs> soccer um, when I was about 10. And uh, found a team uh, to play in. There weren't many. And from there progressed to uh, playing in my state and, and national team. Uh, by the time I was about uh, 20, I was in the uh, playing for the Matildas. Um I, I studied law at university. Uh, I worked as a judge's associate. I worked as a lawyer. I did an MBA. Uh, I worked as an economics consultant. I worked in um, media, uh, for a media organization in the digital media unit. Uh, I finished up back as a lawyer. I'm not quite sure how that happened. but um, <laughs> uh, And in the meantime, I joined the board of Football Federation Australia around the time that uh, Australia joined Asia. Mm -hmm. So there were uh, there was suddenly a world of opportunity in Asia, and by background I'm I'm half Chinese. Uh, my mum was born in Australia, but of, of Chinese heritage, and uh, Asia was always very interesting to me. We played there several times when when I was playing for the national team, including in the first ever FIFA Women's World Tournament in 1988 that was played in southern China. Huh. Uh, and of course, you know some of the Asian teams were very prominent throughout the 80s and 90s. Of course, most memorably, the Chinese team of 99 that, that made the World Cup final mm -hmm. uh, against the US and, and lost only on penalties. Uh, but, yeah, through all of that, I, I became involved in the AFC. And um, the AFC, interestingly, had created quota positions for women huh. back in the mid-2000s. And I was in the first crop of women who joined the executive committee in uh, the AFC and was the first um, among the first the first in the first group elected to those roles chaired the women's football committee uh, the legal committee at different times and um, of course we had a fair degree of turbulence in Asia too um, so I learned uh, I learned a lot in that period and when FIFA created a position uh, for a woman on its executive committee, I was Asia's nominee to that role. 
Um, I didn't win the election, but I was uh, co-opted anyway and found myself on FIFA's executive committee um, for three years uh, during, well, a pretty momentous time in its history. Yeah. Um, You decided to work inside the system as opposed to maybe protesting it from the outside. And I can imagine as one of the few women at near the top of FIFA, you might have found yourself banging your head against a wall on occasion. How have you dealt with that? How have you tried to work through the sort of cultural challenges that have been built in for so many decades with so many men in FIFA and try and get some things done, even if it's maybe not as much as you would like to see get done? Well, first of all, I, I, I took it as a precious opportunity to work inside the system. Not many people get that opportunity. And it had come my way uh, partly from happenstance. But when you get that opportunity, uh, you know, to me, I felt that I couldn't, I couldn't waste it. I didn't want to treat it lightly or flippantly or, um, or burn it away because so few women had that opportunity. I, mean, I was one of three women who, in 108 years, <laughs> had been on the executive committee of FIFA. Three. And I felt that uh, it was important to absolutely make the best of it. So my uh, one of my guiding principles, I guess, was to, to, to do that, to make it a priority and to treat the, treat the position... Uh, as one where, you know, most of all, you want it to be effective. I didn't want it to be wasted. Uh, You talk about cultural challenges. I think, you know, I think I've had, and I think we probably all have had a fair bit of practice at dealing with the cultural challenges of being a woman in a male environment. You know, I'd worked in a telecommunications company for for half a dozen years uh, amongst engineers and, uh, (laughs) you know, white-collar managers who were, who were, overwhelmingly male there are women who are working in male dominated professions all over the world in, in great numbers and that's not a, a new challenge for us to do that and certainly in football you know I mean I've been in football for dozens of years and hung out and talked football with um, an endless number of guys so, so that was not a new challenge for me but the environment was new the institution was new and I needed to learn and understand as much as I could about it because I wanted to be effective in that role. Um, and I think that that was the yardstick I set for myself was to be to be effective. Now, FIFA has had this seismic change happen with the U.S. Department of Justice arrests, with Seth Blatter no longer being in charge, with the election of Johnny Infantino who certainly talks a good game about increasing the role of women in FIFA, increasing the importance of women's soccer around the world. He did name Fatma Samora as his general secretary, uh, obviously the first woman to be a general secretary of FIFA. And yet I still want to ask you, do you buy what Johnny Infantino is doing in terms of gender reform in FIFA? Is this really happening or are you still in wait and see mode? I think some things are very tangibly happening. Uh, Those appointments that you've talked about, Fatma Samura as the Secretary General of FIFA, could you have imagined even two years ago that there would be uh, an African Muslim woman in the Secretary General's office of FIFA? I'm not sure that I could have. Um, We have a, a, a new head of development and member associations, Joyce Cook. Um, I don't know if you've met Joyce. No. uh, But she's um, uh, an English woman who has, for the last several years, spearheaded uh, an accessibility NGO. Joyce herself is in a wheelchair, and she has lobbied um, very effectively for accessibility to stadiums for um, uh, disability uh, patrons and fans who want to come to the game. Hmm. Um, she's now the head of member associations and development in FIFA. Uh, Sarai Barrowman has been appointed as the chief of women's football. And Sarai, uh, you probably remember, was the only woman on the reform committee mm-hmm. in FIFA. And I worked with her a lot 
in uh, developing the reform package and and trying to help it get through. Um, so you know these are people who who have a long history in uh, working on issues um, in their social context. I mean, Fatma worked for the UN for many years. Uh, I think I think those people are bringing a different perspective to the table than we've had uh, over the years in FIFA, and I think that's um, a positive thing to have that diversity of opinion, to have stakeholder groups represented in the room, and ultimately to have accountability back to the broader football community on how FIFA performs on those kinds of inclusion issues. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I think it's pretty tangible when the Secretary General. Is um, is a woman? That's a that's a tangible sign that things are changing in FIFA. Uh, of course, you know, Johnny's not even yet at the end of his first year in office. Um, Fatma has been there since I think since July. Uh, Joyce has been there since perhaps uh, September or October. October maybe. No, I'm sorry, November. I mean, she's she's only been there uh, um, not even two months now. Um, and Sarai. Has has just got there, I think. Uh, so, you know, they'll take a little time to settle in and bring what they bring to the table. But I do see really tangible signs of, of change in the organisation. Um, you know, that said, football still has has a long way to go. But uh, I think it's it's progress rather than perfection that uh, we can aspire to in the short term. So now we do have the situation where you have to have at least one woman per confederation, per continent, involved in the FIFA Council. Uh, but we also have a situation where you're a little up in the air, as I understand. Um, you know, there's a few things that have been happening here in Asia, and I reported this a couple of months ago before the election was supposed to take place. You have some men in Asia who are trying to install what I would say are pliable women who don't have the qualifications for the job to fill those quota jobs. You were going to be running against someone, a woman from North Korea, of all places, and a woman from Bangladesh who don't have nearly the track record that you have. And then the election didn't even happen. So I want, please fill me in on kind of where you personally are in that election situation to the FIFA council. And how, are, how concerned should we be about maybe men trying to install women who aren't necessarily qualified to have, to try and increase their own influence in the situation? Um, look, that, that's a complex question, but let me first uh, unwind a couple of things. I think it's um, – I, I haven't assumed that uh, anyone is trying to install anyone at this point in Asia. I think we were due to have an election uh, amongst three candidates. And interestingly, in Asia, we actually had three candidates <laughs> for, the, for the women's position. <laughs> yeah. um, that, that uh, I think, is a good sign because you've got people who are putting up their hands and saying, well, you know, I I'm willing to have a go at this. And, um, you know, I think, I think that's to be – welcomed and, and applauded, that suggests that um, there is going to be a contest and that there are women who are willing to step up and show their ambition, if you like, to, to be part of football's governance. The election was delayed uh, and it's now due to be held in in May, shortly prior to the the next FIFA Congress. So by the by May we we will have a full complement of Asian representatives. It's not just the women's position, by the way, that, that where the election was delayed, but there were two other positions, um, non-gender specific positions, let me call them, uh, that were due for election as well. Um, and and I, but I, but I think the issue that you you're tugging at goes to uh, a broader one about of governance really. And um, let let me draw an illustration this way. I'm here in Adelaide where I'm sitting, I think we were the first place in the world to give women both the right to vote and the right to stand for parliament. Huh. And I'm pretty sure the right to vote came before the right to stand for parliament. Interesting. <laughs> in those places. Uh, in football, through these quotas, um, and I'm a supporter of quotas, let me say, because I think that without quotas, you, you wouldn't have any women represented there at all, at least 
at the least I was only there. I, as one of the first women, I, I'm sure I was only there because of the quota. Hmm. Um, so I'm a supporter of quotas, although I don't think they're a perfect solution by any means. The, the, the much better solution is an organic merit-based system <laughs> that is working. And then you will get um, a diversity of representatives at the table. But nonetheless, in the, in, in, uh, the era where quotas are necessary, which I think is the era we're living in, what we find is that the voters are still overwhelmingly male. Because right. even while at the very at the very top table at the council, FIFA can create positions for, for women, when you look at the voting population that sits just beneath those positions, that voting population is almost entirely male. So you make a good point um, that, you know, the the women who we who we will see elected into those positions are the women who those men are happy to elect. Right. And and in Asia, there is no woman who votes. Um, now, is that fatal to a democratic governance process? Well, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, we're yet to have this election, but I certainly was determined to make the election uh, ab about merit, um, to send the message to the electorate that it was really important that Asia be represented by its most capable council members because there's an important job to do uh, to bring expertise and perspective to the top table at FIFA uh, from Asia. Um, Asia has interests. Um, Asia has an enormous set of growing economies, fast-growing economies, which and they have two-thirds of the world's population, which needs to be uh, made part of the game of football to the greatest extent possible, which needs to become part of the football community, both on the field and off it, to the greatest extent possible. And it's an enormous set of markets which can benefit the game globally. So you want your best people there. And that was uh, the message that I tried to consistently give to uh, the stakeholders in Asia, uh, that um, this, was, this was something for women's football. It's important that that representative carries the flag for women's football because if she doesn't <laughs> then uh you know I, i'm not sure that we can uh I I expect others to carry it more than her yeah no but it's also but, but but it's also to bring uh expertise to the table and to bring a vision to the table which um puts the growth of the world game at its center but ensures that each confederation is contributing its best uh capabilities to that to that shared goal. Um, so, as I say, we're yet to have that election, but I'm, um, I, I plan to be a candidate. Uh, nominations haven't closed yet, uh, so we don't know who the, the set will be, but uh, I'm planning to be there in May and uh, hopefully after that able to uh, take a place uh, in the FIFA Council. But let me tell you, it's been the longest warm-up in history for me. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's kind of like having your grand final delayed on the day, you know, when you're all set and ready to play with your boots on. Uh, but, you know, that, that, that game will get played and um, I, I plan to be there and, and contesting it. I don't know who the, uh, the others, if any, will be at this point. Um, but, you know, I, I don't see it as a bad thing that there are others, other women willing to stand up. As I say, I don't, I don't think any of the other confederations had three contenders uh, putting their names forward. Um, there are too few women active in world football governance. Uh, so those who are prepared to, to stand up, I think we need to um, congratulate them and ensure that their, uh, their, their talents and their appetite for, for work is put to good use in some part of the game. Well, you're being very polite. This is where I reiterate what I put out a couple of months ago when I reported about this and say that if Asia wants credibility, they will elect you to a seat on the FIFA Council as someone who has a tremendous track record uh, in FIFA and in world soccer. Um, I did want to ask you about something in your confederation, which is a very interesting topic to me, which is in Iran and the situation of women and their tradition there of not being allowed to attend soccer games. And 
wanted to get your sense of where is that right now and what is being done to try and allow women to be able to attend games? Yeah, this is a heartbreaking issue for many, many women in Iran. Um, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine not being able to watch football, not being able to go to the game? Um, and, uh, of course, they did before the before the revolution. They could, and then they couldn't. And, uh, you know, I, I've spoken to I've, – I've been to Iran. I've spoken to women there who are campaigners on this issue. Um, they – I've spoken to people who have – been to games in disguise. Uh, you can disguise yourself as a man, um, but you better not get caught because it'll be very tough if you do. But you can disguise yourself. Interestingly, I spoke to one woman who disguised herself as a woman of the nationality of the team Iran was playing in wow. the World Cup qualifier, and that's how she got into the game because foreign women are allowed in with, if they're with the team that uh, is the opposition. Uh, but local women are not. Um, I've spoken to an Iranian male player from their national team who said it was his wish that he could play at home uh, in the stadium and have his mother and his wife and his sister and his daughter come and watch him play and to feel their presence in the stadium. Um, you know, this is, this is a tough issue. It, uh, Sepp Blatter went to Iran and spoke out about it. I was there at the time. And, you know, when the president of FIFA is asking for something to be to be looked at and standing up for women's rights in Iran, and that still doesn't shift it, then you know that you have got a, uh, a, a tough problem. And, and in the end, uh, it's um, something that Iran itself, the establishment powers in Iran, will have to make the call on um i mean it's not it's not something that's within uh my power certainly to to change except to keep talking about the issue publicly highlighting it and highlighting the need for there to be progress on this issue interestingly volleyball is another sport where women have been excluded from the stadiums uh, and groups like Human Rights Watch have been very active on that because Iran has actually hosted uh, international tournaments where women have been excluded from uh, the stadiums. I mean, I, I've, I've seen the, the ticket-buying engines where you go online and you try and buy a ticket, and at some point it asks you if you're male or female, and if you click female, then that's it. You, you, kind of, you can't get a ticket. <laughs> you just hit a dead end. You know, I think I think the international community is important in calling this out. And, and I've been to matches in Australia uh, where Iran is playing and where supporters have come along uh, outside the stadium with banners um, campaigning on this issue. Uh, I, I saw a supporter outside the stadium campaigning on the issue in, in Montreal during the Women's World Cup. Hmm. These banners and these uh, campaigners appear all over the place in world football. Inside the stadium, usually the banners are taken down or taken away, uh, but the issue is kept alive and it needs to be kept alive. Uh, Iran is not the only country, by the way, where women have difficulty getting into to watch. I think in Saudi there are also battles and, in fact, in Iran, women can play the game of football hmm. and many do. Uh, in other countries, you know, even girls participating in sport is a a huge cultural shift mm -hmm. from from where they are but i guess you know along it's my motto above all things try to be effective <laughs> and uh i think in these in these situations i think it it's helpful to spend our energy trying to figure out how to be effective rather than spend our energy making uh judgments about about others cultures because in the end you know cultural context is a very very broad spectrum and what is acceptable in one culture is abhorrent in another i mean we we still live in a world where homosexuality is punishable by death mm -hmm. in some countries true by death in other countries uh polygamy is considered a crime 
and yet is completely normal and acceptable in, in others. Right. So, as I say, there's a very broad spectrum of, of a cultural context that we operate across as a world game. And I found it pays not to judge, you know. I mean, who are we to judge? We, we all come from our own cultural context. Uh, context. We all have our own set of biases, cultural biases, whether they're conscious or unconscious. Uh, but if, if your guiding principle is that women and that, that everybody, if your guiding principle is that everybody should be able to participate in the game of football, then, you know, to me that is the broad goal that, You've got to you've got to work towards every day, and rather than judge, I think the, the to, to me the most important thing is to understand, mm-hmm. because you can't if you want to change something, you must first understand it. Right. And judgment judgments can cloud your understanding. Uh, if you form a quick judgment about something, a concluded judgment, it it may well get in the way of your understanding of that issue. Okay. Uh, switching gears just a little bit here, I, I'm here in the United States. I feel like the U.S. has had a tremendous influence on the development of women's soccer, especially uh, Title IX played a huge role in women's sports in this country. And yet I look at the influence of the U.S. and American women in global soccer governance, and there's a small one. Uh, Mary Harvey's had some role over the years, but I see people who I think could have a huge impact like Julie Foudy or Abby Wambach, and I don't see them running for the FIFA council or positions inside the new FIFA to really affect change from within there now that there appears to be a real opportunity. Have you tried to convince Foudy or Wambach to run for FIFA office? Um, well, Foudy and Wombat have enormous talents, no doubt about that. And in fact, I worked with Julie Foudy on the FIFA reform package. I talked to her about uh, a number of the ideas in it. In fact, the number, the ideas in it, in, in that reform package, were drawn from a wide range of sources, including, including the US, where, as you say, Title IX is the landmark piece of legislation ensuring uh, participation in, in women's football and that shows up in your numbers and it shows up in your elite success as well um, in terms of the representation of people at FIFA well uh, again this is a question that comes back to the structure of, of governance and for many years there's there was a rule that you couldn't have two people from one country mm-hmm. um, so that meant that you know, no matter how many wonderfully qualified people you had from a particular country, only one of them was going to be at the table. And in fact, the voting structure of FIFA is also reflective of this. I mean, the, the US's voting uh, stake in FIFA is one. Mm-hmm. There are countries with 50,000 people who have the same voting power as the United States or China, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it, it's always been, you know, this idea of representative global democracy has always, has always had to decide between uh, is, it, is it one country, one country, one vote, or is it something else? And if it is something else, what is that something else? Does it go by uh, population conglomeration? Does it go by economic power? What does it go by? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in FIFA, it's it's always remained as one. Represent uh, one vote per country. Now, has that been a? That, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That ensures that there's representation from all parts of the world, and it's not an organisation that becomes dominated by just a few countries. And there are plenty of sports you can look at where that is the case, either because of the spread of the sport or uh, because of the structure of its voting. Football, on the other hand, is a global sport. It's it's one of only a few global institutions that, are, that is always um, held by that mantra of one vote per country. Um, so I think that's that's part of why you see little representation. Uh, but I think, you know, the influence of the, uh, the women of the US is still 
significant, not only through Title IX, but um, through their performance on the field. I think that message goes out to everyone in the world. I saw Sunil Gulati speaking at the last uh, symposium about uh, Women's Football Symposium, which is at the World Cup in Canada. And he was quite open about what they do in the US and how they support the game. And I think that that has a lot of influence in shifting the cultural attitudes of 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 other countries. Julie Foudy also spoke at that symposium uh, in typical Foudy fashion. You know, she was she was it was a call to action. It was a call to action. I remember her saying, "It starts here, and it starts with you." And you know, for the many representatives, there were 171 countries in the room that day, hearing that message. Um, whether those uh, whether those guys want to go into let's call it football politics and uh, join a representative table is I don't know I guess it's a it's a matter for them there is something about being on the inside which means you can't also be the voice on the outside though so you kind of have to choose which is going to be the the place where you where you have the greatest opportunity and and can make the, the greatest contribution. This is where I sort of reiterate when it comes to voting right now, the FIFA Council has 37 members, at least six will be women. Uh, there are currently 211 national associations. Two of 211 national association presidents are women right now in FIFA. And sometimes you have the entire 211 member body vote sometimes you have the 37 member fifa council vote the numbers certainly could stand to improve on both sides especially i would argue in national association presidents uh last couple of questions here because i've kept you here for a long time on a holiday are you following this u.s women's national team action against u.s soccer asking for equal pay to what u.s soccer pays the U.S. men's team, and is women's soccer around the world following that to see what might happen as far as payment for U.S. women's players and how that might impact women around the rest of the world? Of course I'm following it. Uh, I don't have any particular inside knowledge or information, but uh, certainly I, I read what I can about it and I'm following it with interest. I mean, help me out here a little bit. I, I need to do some research. It, around the world... Are women's national team players paid in every country, or what's the situation there? Uh, there are many teams who are not paid. I mean, you know, we're talking about a spectrum here, a spectrum of progress, uh, and you can look at it by geography around the world at a moment in time, uh, or you can look at it over time within a country. But whichever way you look, whichever axis you look on, you will see a spectrum of conditions for the women's national team at one end of the spectrum at the bad end uh, you'll see teams that barely play uh, they're not resourced enough to even uh, have proper youth programs that lead up to the senior level and at the senior level they that they, they barely play and there are a lot of countries in that category if you look on the FIFA rankings for women you'll see that that at a certain point, the numbers stop getting any bigger. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, and at that point, you've you've reached the number of uh, countries who don't participate often enough to even get a FIFA ranking. And I think right now it's about 120 or 130 hmm. thereabouts. Wow. Uh, so that's a lot of countries who don't have a senior women's team that's active at all. If it is active, you, you could be in the situation that I was in as a player uh, for Australia, you know, 25, 30 years ago, where we paid to for, for every time we participated in a training camp or uh, a set of matches. We paid. It cost us money. Yeah. What were you paying for? Um, well, we were paying for um, airfares, for, you know, um, accommodation whatever we, we had to make a contribution i mean when, when i played in the first ever fifa tournament in china in 1988 this was you know this was the miracle which had finally arrived fifa was finally putting on a women's tournament that we could play in maybe there would be an you know a consistent international setup that we could participate in finally maybe there would be a world cup if we if we did well enough if it was a good enough tournament maybe they would hold a world cup that we could play in for that tournament, I got a bill for 850 bucks. 
because that was what it cost. We had to get the players together in Australia. I think we had three or four days to train together in Sydney. And then we flew to China. And, uh, you know, there were domestic airfares. There were, there were costs. You know, we had to have tracksuits. Um, <laughs> you know, those costs had to be met by the players. And the federation, um, the, it, was, it was a women's only federation at that point. They were separated. But uh, they didn't have the sponsors, the wherewithal. There were no broadcast rights or monies. Um, there was very little government support because we didn't have a world tournament. It was not in the Olympics at that time. Um, you know, so, so if you wanted to do it, you had to do it yourself. You had to solve your own problem. And that's what we did. And it, had we not done that, we wouldn't have had the base of players or the base of performance upon which we could, have, we, we could build. And we wouldn't be where we are now as a top 10 country ranked in the world. Uh, so, you know, this is all a spectrum of progress, I, I guess. And in the US, you're very progressed. You've had Title IX for 30-odd years, longer, 40-odd years. Yeah. And that's been hugely influential in growing the participation base in the US. In fact, your participation base in North America is multiple times the global average. It's multiple times uh, the average even of in places like South America, which are football crazy right right and and i would argue that title nine has put soccer on the map in the u.s yeah in a way that it just would not have been otherwise i mean it was seen as a, a sport for foreigners almost i think yeah 30 40 years ago and then when it hit the colleges and so many women began to play um it grew enormously very quickly and all of a sudden you know you had a million players yeah and it was like where did they all come from well, you then had a huge player base, and as those well-educated college women graduated, entered the workforce, became parents, all of that thing, it, it has become institutionalized into the psyche of the country that kids play soccer now. That's what you do. I don't think that was there 40, 50 years ago. I mean, I'm not an expert on, on US football history, but it's made a massive impact simply by saying you must give equal opportunities to participate. Yeah. No, it's totally true. And upon that, and, and from there you had uh, a national team that was, I mean, I remember playing against them in the mid-90s and they were on contracts. They were earning, you know, uh, a, a, a decent wage, about as much as I was as a baby lawyer, I think. And, um, you know, they, they, were, they were playing full-time. They were good players. They were full-timers. Yeah. And they whipped us because we were part-timers who were trying to hold down a day job. <laughs> um, and from, from there... You know, you, you, have, uh, you had a very professionalised national team uh, who got paid wages, got, got given a lot of games. I mean, you know, one reason why Abby has so many uh, caps and so many goals, the reason Christine Lilly has so many caps, and, and I could go on, Foudy, many, many others, you know, have got 200 caps or more. This is extraordinary. I mean, there's no Australian player who's got 200 caps. Mm-hmm. Um, because we simply didn't simply didn't get that much time together and and, and that much game time, so you know you're really at at one end of the spectrum, where the the national team at least is remunerated, well remunerated I think, mm-hmm. and but then you know like I say it's a spectrum of progress and and I wouldn't criticise the players for pushing the envelope and saying well we may be we may be in the vanguard of all this, but are we there yet? And, and they're saying, we're not there yet. Right. They're saying, there are still things that represent inequalities, and we're still going to push to have those gaps closed. And uh, I, I think, you know, the, the gender pay gap is something that's talked about widely in business. Um, and it's still, it's still kind of one of those baffling mysteries as to why a woman doing the same job is paid less than a man, substantially less. I mean, in Australia, it's about... Uh, 18%, I think, on average. And in more, more senior management roles, it's, it's 30 or 40%. It's a big number. Uh, and, and it exists in sport to a much greater degree because men's sport is a business that has been nurtured, invested in, promoted for decades. And women's sport is not. It's a smaller business right now. Uh, I mean, where I personally spend my time and effort agitating is 
to grow that business, to invest in that business, to treat it as an opportunity and not as a charity or some kind of, you know, loss-making exercise, but treat it as an opportunity to grow a business. I mean, all kinds of uh, uh, men's football clubs and organisations lose money hand over fist, and yet it's still regarded as an investment. Right. Uh, I would like to see women's football invested in so that the business can grow to the point where those gaps close. I think it is, and and as I say, I I would never criticise anyone for demanding equality. I think that's fundamental. When you look at the whole end-to-end system, though, you have to say that the whole, uh, there are many moving parts. There are many daisies in the chain that kind of need to, 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 uh, change and it's not only one relationship between a set of players and a national governing body that can be called out but there are many economic relationships all through that value chain where the it, that, that feed that inequality if I can put it that way mm-hmm. and those also deserve to be questioned and agitated I mean wh- why why are broadcast schedules so skewed towards male sport Mm -hmm. why are sponsorship schedules so skewed towards male sport why do why why is media coverage so poor for women's sport you know where i live in australia if you want to be on tv playing sport doing your sport you are better off being a horse than being a woman Hmm. there is more horse racing on tv then there is all of women's sport put together. Now, that's changing, and I hope when they next measure it, 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 it <laughs> it's not still the case. Uh, we've made some great progress in the last year. It's been really a watershed year for women's sport here. Hmm. But nonetheless, those gaps are um, are still, you know, pretty intransigent in some, in some areas. And it will take a lot of... Uh, hands knocking on a lot of doors to to make that change as i say not just at one point in the value chain but actually all the way through where where those inequalities are fed as we finish up here i want to ask you about one particular event i would love to see start and that would be a fifa women's club world cup and that's something that we haven't seen before we are in a period where in the years 2017 and 2018, there is no major women's global event. There's no Olympics. There's no Women's World Cup. What are the chances for starting a women's club World Cup by FIFA? Is this something you want to push for? I love the idea of a club World Cup. Uh, and I've said it uh, a few times uh, before. I think the next frontier for women's football is club football. Uh, we have national team competitions. Uh, we have pretty widespread uptake of participation in those national team competitions. But that's not what you see on your TV um, or in your feeds week in, week out. What's there week in, week out? Are the, are the leagues that the club's playing? And club football, um, for, for it, if, you look at, if you look at the men... Club football is what pays their week-in, week-out wages. It's not national team football. Right. Um, I mean, that's an interesting perspective on the claim in the US as well. I mean, should it be the national team who's responsible for playing the base wages or should it be somebody else? Should it be club football that steps up to that? And, you know, around the world, uh, um, even where we see the national teams being quite well remunerated, it generally stops at the national team and it doesn't there's not many people in clubs who are making a comfortable living playing football to me that's the next frontier and there are so many club brands that are highly followed um they're very popular i mean look at look where club football is right now it's it's absolutely filling channels and channels of our screens constantly you can watch endless amounts of club football almost day and night that's where women's football needs to go next. I think that that's where uh, the the fans the fans are. The fans will take to it. I think the sponsors will take to it, and I think the broadcasters will take to it. Uh, but to give women's club football that kind of platform and profile, 
would be a, would be a great thing, and I would I would love to see it happen. Really quick to finish up, what's on your wish list for 2017? What are some things you want to see happen? Oh, I've just been talking about my wish list for an hour, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, let me put it number one. For everyone in football to recognize their unconscious gender biases and consciously address them. Mm-hmm. That's my number one. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of way more specific things I could tell you, but I think if we're going to change uh, a culture that, that will truly open the game to women and girls, then that's the one fundamental thing we need to get our heads around. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Moya Dodd, you're one of my favorite people in, in world football. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Grant. And happy 2017. Thank you very much from 2016. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Moya Dodd, as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Colin Udo, John Green, Kate Abdo, Bob Bradley, and Rory Smith. You can subscribe to and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.